the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. All things not yet done, and nobody and no one will prevent him from having his way. His purposes will be accomplished, whether we choose to cooperate or not. God is sovereign and does not need us, but he does choose to involve us, and he cannot fail. God cannot fail. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. And I will accomplish my purpose. I can see the promised land. Though there's pain within the plan. There is victory in the end. Your love is my battle cry. The anthem for all my life. Every dragon will fall. The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken into All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible Hello and welcome to today's Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so glad and encouraged that you've chosen to spend time with us today studying God's Word. And we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's program, Pastor Keith continues his sermon series entitled, The Blueprint. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to Isaiah 45. And now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study. It also means that some Christian sects, like Oneness Pentecostalism that says, there is no Trinity. One moment, he's God the Father. The next moment, he's God the Son. And the next moment, he's God the Holy Spirit. That's called modalism. That there is no Trinity and that God fulfills different roles at different times, but not all at once. If that verse is true, then oneness Pentecostalism must be false because it has an erroneous understanding of the nature of God. And that moves you into a whole different territory, not far away from the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. So why is the nature of the Trinity important? Well, first of all, because there's a triunity, one God, three persons. Now, does the Bible say that God is one? Well, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 makes that very clear. The great Shema. It says, one of the statements of faith of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength, or with all your might, depending on what translation you've memorized. It says, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we see name, not names. 
Here we see that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are treated as equally important. In the same breath, we're told to do all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to baptize people. We see that they are equal in nature and essence and priority and reverence. They're listed in the same breath. I won't get into the grammatical intricacies of the original Greek here, but what you have here is the Trinity. One God. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, is one God. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And you have them together in Matthew 3, 16 and 17 simultaneously. That's why we need to understand the God we worship. Because people will tell you, oh no, you're, you're worshiping three gods. Or they might bend your mind a little bit. They might confuse you. You need to know what you believe so that you can give the simplest answer. So that you can give an answer for the hope that lies within you with meekness, gentleness, and respect. The Trinity. Yes, it's a subject fraught with error. And, and that era is a dangerous era because if you don't understand the Trinity, can you understand the gospel in a saving, salvific way? And yes, it's laborious, though I've given you sort of an Occam's razor simplistic approach here. And it's more profitable, it's very profitable to study. Difficult to explain, complicated, but not impossible. And you can use human analogies, but as I discussed with someone last week, human analogies, when pressed too far, fail. You can talk about an egg. It's an egg. It has a shell. It has a white. It has a yolk. One egg, three expressions. But that doesn't work so well. But it, it might help with a child or someone. Or me. Not me individually, but you. You can be a father. You can be a son. And you can be a traffic cop all at once. Okay? All three are expressions of your personhood. But be careful because otherwise you're going to move into that whole modalism thing that one moment you're this, one moment you're that. I'm just giving you word pictures here. I think a physicist told me once, I think it was a physicist, that water under certain pressures can, can be, a body of water can be simultaneously gas, liquid, and solid. It's still the same body of water. The point is, is it's understandable if we do the spade work and put the sweat equity in the study of God's word. And if we do that, we can explain what we know to those who ask. Why, why should this be important to you? Because that God, that triune God, could be the Father maintaining the, the earth, maintaining the universe, all things being held together by the word of his power, while the Son died for you on the cross and paid your sin debt, and while the Holy Spirit is your comforter and sustainer, and the universe didn't just stop. And it means that you're not alone. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Son intercedes for you. The Father executes His will sovereignly in your life and the lives of others. There is great comfort. There is great hope in that. And you may say, well, I, I can't explain stuff like this. Maybe you can't explain it all. Maybe you can't explain it exhaustively. I know I can't. But I believe you can, if you try, explain enough of it sufficiently to get somebody to stop and listen maybe and think. And, that's, and I love this verse. It's, you see the Trinity here, and it's not in our notes, or it's not in our uh, PowerPoint. 
2 Corinthians 13, 14. Write this down. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is a blessing. It's a Trinitarian formula used by the ancient church. And to me, the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who is with me and in me, guiding me into all truth while I walk through this earthly life, this momentary earthly life, is a comfort to me. And I hope it is a comfort to you. Because you're never by yourself. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send a helper, the Holy Spirit, another helper like me of the same kind, God, the Holy Spirit, who will be in you and with you forever. And I can tell you what, when tragedy befalls you, your knowledge of God is what keeps you on your feet. And that's why I want you to study this out. I want you to think about it because you cannot cram for life. Life will happen to you. It will catch you flat-footed. You will not see it coming but your knowledge and relationship with God and your understanding of who he is and how he is will sustain you. And I can bear witness to that personally. And you can too, I'm sure. Category one was the existence of God and what it means. Category two was the nature of God and what that means. Category three is the sovereignty of God and what that means. And in some cases, this is one of the more controversial aspects of God. And we see it in our statement of faith that He has limitless power and knowledge. He has limitless knowledge and sovereign power, and God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for Himself and to make all things new for His own glory. That has to do with the sovereignty of God and what that means for you. Where do we find the sovereignty of God in a nice, simple, compact verse? Isaiah 46.10. Isaiah 46.10. Here's how God describes himself. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. There's a certainty there. Saying, my counsel will stand. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. It's the sovereignty of God. He's not figuring out what might happen. He's not trying to make things happen and hoping they're, turning, they're going to turn out okay in the end. It's already been determined. He's declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that have not yet taken place. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, you knew every day that was written in the book of my life when there was not yet one of them. But this goes beyond that to say that he determines them and that his, he will accomplish his, person, his purpose. Now, this becomes a sticky, sticky topic because there are a lot of things going on in the world that make people uncomfortable. Wars and rumors of wars, things like that. And there are people who say, well, if God is all-powerful, then he must not be all-loving because if he was all-powerful and all-loving, there wouldn't be any sickness, sadness, or suffering. Or they'll say, well, he's, he might be all-loving, but he, and they, could, they go back and forth. And we want to get God off the hook. God doesn't need to be defended. He just requires that we worship him. And so we have all these crazy attempts to, like in Monopoly, give God, you know, here, pass, go, get $200, and get out of jail free. That's not what God needs. That's not, that's not what God wants. Isaiah 46.10 should be great words of comfort to us because God has ordained all that happens, including the outcomes, that he has predetermined from ancient times 
all things not yet done, and nobody and no one will prevent him from having his way. His purposes will be accomplished, whether we choose or to cooperate or not. God is sovereign and does not need us, but he does choose to involve us, and he cannot fail. God cannot fail. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purpose. What does this do for us? Well, there are heresies. There's one called process theology, that God is kind of working things out and he's getting better at what he does. And by interacting with us, he learns from us and he becomes even more godlike. And eventually he gets it all right. The ugly first cousin of that, or twin sister of that heresy, is open theism. What does open theism teach? That God doesn't know the future because it hasn't happened yet. And that God interacts and reacts with us, and he responds, and he works hard to, through probability theory almost, to bring about his will. That's not much of a God. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of the garden, when Satan said, has God really said? Has God really said, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose? Yes, he has, quite clearly. The French philosopher Voltaire, probably one of the neatest and nastiest guys that ever lived, made this statement. In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and ever since then, man's been trying to return the favor. You see, what we try to do is we ascribe our ideas of fairness and our ideas of life, and we try to impose them on God. That makes us God and him our servant. We can't do that. He's sovereign. Even Nebuchadnezzar says so. Daniel 4.35 Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> after having a vegetarian diet of grass in the great outdoors and communing with nature, on his hands and knees like a wild animal, says, you know, he came to his senses, and what does he say? He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. They don't have any power. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, no one, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, God raises up countries and he knocks them down. He raises up kings and he removes them. And the fact of the matter is that not even the devil can do anything without God's permission. Where do we see that? We see that in Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. Well, you know, stop protecting him. Let me have a crack at him. Okay, you can have a crack at him, but you can't touch him. You can take away everything he has, but you can't touch him. Right? There's a hedge around Job. Later on, he comes back. Have you still considered my servant Job? Yeah, but, you know, he goes, well, I'll tell you what. I'll let you touch him, but you can't kill him. And Job never knew what hit him. But God was demonstrating his sovereignty to us, not to Job. Job never knew. And sometimes we don't know why things happen, but we do know this, that all things do work together for good, and that even what men or Satan mean is evil against us, God intends for good. Remember Jesus talking to Peter and the disciples, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission. I love that. 
demanded permission. Sounds like a two-year-old throwing a hissy fit, doesn't it? Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and if, no, it's not if, when you turn, encourage your brothers. God is sovereign. And just how sovereign is he? What does Jesus say? Look at John 6.65. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. Look at Amos 3.6. I want to finish this out. Some people say, well, you know, where was God in my tragedy? Because even tragedies often are trials sent by God. And no tragedy can befall you without God's permission. In Amos 3.6, we read this. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Think about that. Job experienced calamity. Peter, God determined this. Israel, right? God knew the plans he had for Israel. They were going to sin, but he, and he was going to punish them, but restore them. This is what our denomination, this is what our church believes. God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself. He has limitless knowledge and sovereign power. As the creator and designer of the universe, he, there's nothing he doesn't know. And he has the, if he can speak the time, space, matter, energy continuum into an existence, there's nothing that he can't do. And that's why Jesus says in John 6, 65, and this is what, this is, he's fed the 5,000, and he tells them this, and he loses all of his followers pretty much, right? And he said, and this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We can't even take credit for our salvation. Acts 13, 48. Acts 13, 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed God is sovereign. Jesus taught it. The disciples believed it. Luke wrote it down. It is what it is. It is what it is. It's hard to get your mind around. But it's the truth. C.S. Lewis in God in the Dock writes this. In Hamlet, a branch breaks and Ophelia is drowned. Did she die because the branch broke or because Shakespeare wanted her to die at that point in the play? Either, both, whichever you prefer. The alternative suggested by the question is not the real alternative at all. Once you grasp that Shakespeare is making the whole play. God is sovereign. There's just no getting around it. It's an incredible concept. How incredible is it? I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter, uh, twi- uh, Acts chapter 2, verses, verse 22. I want you to savor the sovereignty of God. And, and if some people are saying, well, if he's sovereign, then why does he found, find fault? Well, you need to sp- spend time in Romans 9, right? But beyond that, his sovereignty doesn't excuse our sin. His sovereignty does not relieve us of responsibility. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, really 23, we read this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The New American Standard renders it this way. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Listen to this. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held by its power. This is a picture of the sovereignty of God. We're still accountable for our sins. When he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to, to commit atrocities against Israel, he, had, he held Nebuchadnezzar accountable. The Jews got the Romans to kill Jesus, but you, they're told by Peter at Pentecost, you crucified this Jesus. And the Romans weren't off the hook, the hands of godless men. And the sovereignty of God is shown when God raised him up. It was impossible for the grave to hold Jesus. What does this mean for you? It means this, that all things in your life, no matter how painful no matter how heartbreaking, no matter how difficult, do really work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. That's what the word of God says. And that what, even what men may use as evil against you, as Joseph talks to his brothers after they realize who he is, God intends for good to bring about the salvation of others. Even the crucifixion, even the torturing of Jesus, every punch, every kick, every blow, every nail was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and purposes of God. And you have the opportunity to explain this, whether you just take one verse out of each category, the existence of God and its implications in our lives, the the nature of God and what it means for us, the sovereignty of God and what it means for us. This is something you can explain. You may be asked someday, where are you going? And you'll answer to church. And they'll say, why are you going to church? And you may answer to worship God. And they'll say, is your God great or small? And you'll say, he is both. And they'll say, how can he be both? And you might say, he is so great that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him and so little that he can dwell in my heart. And you will tell him what you learned in your study and reflection on who God is and how God is. And your answer may have more effect on them and their mind than all the blogs and all the Facebook postings and all the debates you engage with in the blogosphere. But what you need to do now is take what you know and think about it and pray about it and find ways to incorporate it as you talk to people about God, as you meet people on the street, as people ask you why you're a Christian. And as you read his word and as you pray about what you read and as you think about what you've heard today and whether some of this throws you a little off balance or not, you'll have a knowledge of God that will sustain you and reassure you in the most difficult times imaginable if you trust him, if you know him, if you study him, if you savor him, if you reflect on his infinite perfections. But at the end of the day, it all starts with a relationship with God. And the question that we all have to ask and answer in this life is, do I not just know that God exists, but understanding that he exists, will I seek him? Will I ask him to save me? And am I willing to serve him no matter where he might take me? Because that is the essence of genuine saving faith, surrendering your will 
to God, surrendering your past, your present, and your future, your life, your rights, to the only one who fully understands you and the only one in his sovereignty and in his triune nature and in his eternal majesty can really take care of you in this life and in the life to come. Pastor Keith Crosby on today's edition of Grace to Live. We are so blessed that you've chosen to spend time with us today studying God's Word. And if you'd like more information on Pastor Keith or Hillside Church, here's how you can connect with us. Our mailing address is 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose, California, 95136. The church office telephone line is area code 408-269-4782. And you can connect with us on our website, which is gracetoliveradio.org. There you can check out archived messages of past sermons and also listen to Pastor Keith's weekly blog. And please remember that the Grace to Live radio program is a listener-supported ministry outreach of Hillside Church if you'd like to partner with us financially. Again, all of these things are available to you on our website, gracetoliveradio.org. Also, I'd like to remind you that Pastor Keith and the staff here at Hillside always look forward to hearing from you. So if you'd like to drop us a note, you can email us here at keith at hillside.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time for Grace to Live. But until then, I'm your host, Kevin Reeves. And on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Keith Crosby from Hillside Church in San Jose. Be sure to join us for our Tour of Israel, April 30th to May 9th, 2020. For more information, go to hillside.org forward slash Israel trip.